0: Hello, I'm Julia Child. Welcome to The French Chef. Any food scene that exists in North America owes a debt to her because she kicked the, the home cooking idea beyond roast beef and mashed potatoes.
1: Hi, I'm Marian Kane, food sleuth. In part two of my Bon Appetit series celebrating the life and legacy of Julia Child, it's the Canadian connection. I talk with some of Toronto's leading chefs and foodies about Julia Child's Toronto visits. You'll hear from Jamie Kennedy, Mark McEwen and Hart Melvin, who all cooked for Julia Child when she was in town. I also speak with cookbook maven Alison Fryer. This August 15th would have been Julia Child's 100th birthday and 2012 is a year of celebration here in Toronto and across North America. I once asked Julia for her advice to young people and she said get into the food business. You'll be part of one big family. That's been true for me and for the people I speak with in this episode. These interviews reveal what was so great about Julia Child and also the depth and passion
2: of Toronto's food family. It was a dream come true for us to meet Julia Child. And it was obviously a dream come true for a lot of Torontonians because there was a huge turnout for that first visit.
1: That's Alison Fryer, longtime manager of the cookbook store in downtown Toronto. A cornerstone of Toronto's culinary scene for many years, the store is a haven for cooks and cookbook collectors. She recalls Julia coming
2: to the store for cookbook signings. And every person who came were almost in tears when they met her. And they came with their books. And this is the best tribute to a cookbook author. They were beaten. They were splashed. They, you know, they had to sort of gently tear open pages to get through their favorite recipes because they were splattered with great memories. And people lined up like at 6.30. After
1: one of these book signings, Allison went for lunch with
2: Julia. I can't remember how old she was. And she was... Um, She wasn't having any alcohol drinks at lunch, so she decided, she leans over to me at lunch, and she says, Alison, I'm having a marvellous time. I I think we could have a spot of something. I knew perfectly well what she meant, so out came the martinis, and we had a lovely time. We just had one each, but then the sticky toffee pudding came out, and this time everybody else is almost standing up. The handlers are trying to get her to move so they get to the next interview, which I think was TV, so in those days it was probably live TV. And she said, nope, I'm finishing my pudding. She and I just sat there at our sticky toffee pudding well. Everybody circled around, just, you know, could she eat a little faster maybe? But she, she had the pastry chef came out. I mean, it was a lovely moment to see that she truly appreciated the food and wasn't going to be budged and harried just because handlers who were probably, you know, an eighth of her age were ready to move her on to the next thing. So it was lovely, charming. She enjoyed her food and, and made no bones about it. And I think that rubbed off on a lot of people too. She wasn't picky. She didn't push her food around on the plate. She ate with relish. At an event at the Four Seasons Hotel in 1991, Allison
1: and I overheard Julia reveal her thoughts on celebrity endorsements. Do you remember Dave Nichol, at at the time, the president's choice of Loblaws, asking her to endorse his chocolate chip cookies?
2: I, I do remember that. And what was her response? She just literally put him down in about two sentences flat, if I remember rightly. She said the following. (laughs) Oh, you do remember.
1: (laughs) She said, I don't endorse things. It destroys your credibility.
2: Yes. And I've never seen Dave Nichol. That's right. I remember that now because then Dave Nichol said nothing. And I've never seen him speechless. It was quite funny.
1: What is her legacy, in your opinion?
2: Definitely her charm. And definitely somebody who's in her 40s takes up cooking. You know, that whole thing that she didn't, grow up saying, I want to be a celebrity chef, which a lot of young kids unfortunately do say these days. Um, You know, I think she, she just fell into it and realized she found her passion later in life. And I think a lot of women, well, not just women, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like she had a career change basically and, and, and went on to have probably the best time of her life in her, from 40 on.
1: She was a late bloomer.
2: She was a late bloomer, and I think a lot of people these days can relate to that. They're in jobs they find dreary and uninteresting and and want to change, and and she had the courage to do that. I mean, she didn't need to to write a magnum opus of a cookbook, but she felt she had it in her, and she wanted to get it out there.
1: Next up, celebrity chef Mark McEwan.
3: I'm Aaron. great to be here. Uh, my name is Mark McEwen. I'm, I'm sort of one of the old salty dogs in the city, uh, 55-year-old working chef. Uh, my first restaurant that I was a partner in was Pronto on, on Mount Pleasant way back in 1985. Uh, I had migrated to there from the Sutton Place Hotel. That was my first executive job. And then I opened North 44 and subsequently opened Bimark, uh, One, McEwen Foods and Fabrica. Uh, we've done a bit of television, I had The Heat as a series for three years and we have Top Chef Canada going into our third season. We did two cookbooks, uh, one on the Fabrica kitchen and one uh, Great Food at Home, which was like old classic recipes, so I guess I'm an author too, but in, in a small sense.
1: Mark was influenced from an early age by Julia
3: Child. My memories of her are very much with my mother because I used to come home from school for lunch most of the time, and my, Julia Child was on the television at that time. So I'd be sitting there having lunch, my mother would be making me lunch, and she'd be in her dress, she looked like uh, Harriet on Ozzy and Harriet, right? All moms looked the same, they had lipstick on, so, so damn adorable, it's unbelievable. So she'd be making me whatever I wanted for lunch, and I'd be watching Julia Child. It was either Julia Child or the Galloping Gourmet, uh, one or the other for lunch. So I have, the, I have these great childhood memories of that. She was a a big, gangly woman with a very funny voice that you couldn't help but love, Uh, good at what she did, genuinely funny. She's an original. She's an original is what she is. Uh, She's not put on or made up or she doesn't have her boobs sticking out of her top when she's cooking. Uh, Really, she's an old lady up there cooking that you, you just love. So, you know, when people identify with a character like that, they, they do it on a really basic level. And you either have it or you don't.
1: So once you became a chef, uh, did you follow Julia Child? I mean, those TV shows, we're talking about the 1960s or 70s at least.
3: Well, I, I had her books, still have them, uh, and they're great classic recipes. Now, they were not her recipes because she went out and learned to cook over time and she collected what she thought were the best recipes in the category so she became a a food technician she went out there and learned all about French cooking so her recipes were really valid Uh, a lot of what we were doing in restaurants sort of moved away from from that style of cooking but still you never you never really get that far away from from great basics Mm -hmm. and she's really classic like old-school Escoffier that was the first cookbook I had was the Escoffier cookbook so many of her things are from that
1: Would there be recipes in particular that you might consult of hers to uh, create something?
3: Well, I think if you wanted to do a classic quiche Lorraine, really, really wonderful basics, if you wanted a perfect short pie dough, uh, basic sauces, basic soups, all these things. Uh, Beef bourguignon, she's famous for, right?
1: Mark was among a group of top Toronto chefs who prepared a lavish lunch for Julia Child in April 1991 at the Four Seasons Hotel. The event was attended by the movers and shakers in this city's food scene. I was Julia's handler and host for that visit, and this lunch was definitely the high point. Mark prepared the main course.
3: I braised a lamb shank, uh, did it in a light horseradish sauce, very light horseradish, I did roasted artichokes and a tomato confit on top of the artichokes. And I remember uh, she made my day because she called me out to the, out to the table to, to ask about my dish and tell me how much she liked my dish. And why did you
1: choose to make that particular dish for Julia Child?
3: I didn't, I didn't want to cook uh, to the fancy side. She's a very humble cook. And if you look at all the things that, through her books, it's all about good process and good beginnings and and uh, straight ahead. She, she wasn't into art on a plate, so I thought I would cook her something that was off my menu uh, that I felt was robust and honest and and uh, I, it worked for me. You know, I did a very light saucing on it, so it was it was very uh, soft and light for lunch. I, I thought it worked well and she loved it. So at least she said she loved it.
1: When lunch was finished, Julia turned to me and asked if she could go into the kitchen to thank the chefs. She started striding towards the chef's office, which was a glassed-in room, I hurrying behind her. I could see the chefs sitting down, eating their lunch, which was baguettes stuffed with salami. She walked into the office, and as they got up, she shook each of their hands and thanked them profusely. It was a beautiful moment. Next, I talk with Hart Melvin.
0: Any food scene that exists in North America owes a debt to her because she kicked the the home cooking idea beyond roast beef and mashed potatoes. And if you can make something stellar at home, then you're going to expect something even better when you go out. And and it's that seed crystal that starts the the process. In
1: 1985, Hart founded Gelato Fresco, a thriving Toronto-based company that reproduces the artisan ices of Italy. One of Canada's most successful food entrepreneurs, he also has a great sense of humor.
0: Today when you turn on the TV, which I do less and less, and you look at anything on the Food Channel, you think that these people have mistakenly stepped off the set of a mixed martial arts show. (laughs) And she brought elegance in class to to dining, and dining is one of those experiences that you share intimately with others, and and it should involve an etiquette, it should involve a protocol, because it it just elevates the experience. And um, she... She enjoyed and shared that joy, what she was doing. And most people today, it looks just so cultivated and so manipulated, and, and, and it's, not, it's not even real. It's all reality TV, which is an oxymoron on a good day.
1: Hart prepared a special dessert for Julia on one of her visits to Toronto in the mid-90s. He recalls what he made.
0: One of the most outrageous things that happens in Toronto every year if you're lucky, it's getting harder to do, is the wild Ontario blueberries that are picked by uh, our Native American brethren. And um, if, if you can score a basket these days for 150 bucks, you're doing well. But the amount of natural pectin in there, all you need is a little bit of white sugar, a squirt of lemon juice, and puree this stuff, and it becomes the creamiest, most intense blueberry thing And I don't think you can put a price on that. And we combined that with uh, Ontario strawberry, which, again, is a our berries are like no other. They're not industrially produced. They're red to the core. Again, there's a tremendous amount of natural pectin in there, which gives it a creaminess when it's aerated and pureed. And so I wanted to give her something local, something fresh, and hopefully something she hadn't had before. And she was extremely gracious in the way she uh, consumed it.
1: Do you remember what she said to you?
0: Well, she said that she truly uh, hadn't had anything like that and really appreciated it. And so I sent her one for American Thanksgiving to her home, and she sent me a letter thanking me for that and, and commenting again on on the, the components and everything else. And, and I mean for somebody of her stature and with her obviously full schedule to take the time to send me a letter I was very impressed
1: next I speak with chef Jamie Kennedy who named his daughter after Julia Child
4: Julia Child really brought the idea of gastronomy to me and the way it was delivered was in such a warm and loving way. Uh, uh, I think a way that I think many North Americans responded to seeing her on television and kind of demystifying this French cuisine, which was this kind of scary prospect of complicated dishes that were impossible to master. Julia kind of broke through all that through her time in in France and telling us stories of her own experiences in France and at the Cordon Bleu in Paris and capturing our own imaginations and at the same time demystifying the French gastronomy.
1: A famous veteran of Toronto's dining scene, Jamie is the owner of Jamie Kennedy Kitchens and of the popular little restaurant Gilead Café. He was awarded the Order of Canada in 2010 for the promotion of Canadian cuisine and the use of organic, sustainable, and local food. He cooked for Julia Child on two occasions when she came to town. I remember what you cooked for that first meal in 1991 at the Four Seasons. Do you remember?
4: I think uh, I think it was a two-tone soup. Yeah, <laughs> but I can't remember what the flavors were. But I do remember it being kind of a yin and yang thing that. You had to pour into the bowl at the same time.
1: Do you remember her coming back into the kitchen, to the chef's office in the kitchen where all of you chefs were gathered, who had cooked that lunch?
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I do remember, and she she acknowledged acknowledged us, but it didn't stop there. She really became, I think, in reality, an extension of what people's uh, view of her was on the television screen or the you know the voice they heard coming out of the television was really what she was like in real life kind of klutzy (laughs) very tall and gangly and a little bit awkward and so with because of her own kind of you know imperfections let's say i think that was one of her charms actually was it was was that kind of disarming nature that she had that that uh, allowed people to 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 think that they could also cook and that it wasn't that insurmountable because if Julia could, could do it, then so could we. Um, but what I was trying to say was that actually in her follow-up to us from that experience, I received a card from her cooking studio in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a handwritten card saying how wonderful it was to have met me and to have uh, and how much she enjoyed the lunch that we had prepared like this, this is the kind of detail that really made me in, in awe of her anew because at that l- latter stage of her life that she still had this, this incredible respect and love for all of the, the people that she met in her life I was just certain of that and that she would not let that kind of thing uh, go by without an acknowledgement
1: I'm wondering what you think her legacy is. Uh,
4: her legacy, if you look around today at how far United States, well, let's just say North America, has come in terms of its own uh, evolution in gastronomy since World War II, let's say. I don't really know what happened, why we got so far off the rails, but we did. And I think, you know, post-World War II, industrialization of everything fast food, fascination with outer space, automation of all kinds of things, kind of brought us away from these kinds of pleasures around the table that I think we knew as a society uh, in earlier times in North America. Certainly in, in Europe, the pleasures of the table have always been fiercely protected and celebrated in just about any culture that I can think of in Europe and continue to be. And, and you know, we as a, as, a, as a culture in North America still, still look to Europe for inspiration in that regard. But our own evolution, our own coming of age in North America, uh, Julia Child has been a catalyst to that.
1: At the Four Seasons Lunch in Toronto held in her honour, Julia Child got up to thank assembled guests. Here's what she said. I didn't know Toronto was such a foodie town. You should do more PR. She couldn't have been more right. Speaking with these Toronto-based chefs and foodies reminds me of how passionate we are about good food and of how rich the Toronto food scene is.
2: No, I think I think Julia Child is somebody who cannot be replicated. I think she's a once in a lifetime uh, person to come along. Uh, I don't think, certainly not in our generation, probably not in our children's generation, we'll ever see somebody who truly broke ground for North American cooks um, and then transcended that and, and took it all around the world. Basically, um, I think she is the mold is broken after her. I don't think she was a true character, a true one of a kind, and it's you don't produce those people just automatically every generation.
1: I'd like to thank everyone for participating in this episode. Alison Fryer at the cookbook store, Hart Melvin of Gelato Fresco, and top chefs Mark McEwen and Jamie Kennedy. And thank you, Julia Child, for awakening North America to the pleasures of the table and inspiring generations of young men and women to be part of our big food family. That's it for the second part of my two-part Bon Appetit series, celebrating the life and legacy of Julia Child. Thanks for listening. If you haven't heard part one yet, it includes interviews with her biographer Bob Spitz, Alex Prudhomme, who co-wrote Julia's memoir, My Life in France, and Judith Jones, Julia Child's longtime friend and editor. Find it on my website, marionkane.com. Along with an exclusive interview with Stephanie Hirsch, Julia's longtime personal assistant, that's m a r i o n k a n e dot com.
2: This is Julia Child.
0: Welcome to the French Chef, and see you next time. Bon appétit.